Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. So we're going to do something we've never, have we ever done this before? Not here. Okay, yeah, we haven't done it since we've been here. Is we're going to be uh, bringing the word together this morning. Uh, for those of you that have been with us uh, or online with us, you know, we're going through a series that we're calling Kingdom Come, and we're asking that question, what happens when we let Jesus rule and reign in our lives? And this particular uh, kind of theme comes from Jesus' ministry. The most um, spoken about thing that Jesus talked about was that the kingdom of God was coming near. And so this is a question we've been asking specifically, kind of the subtitle in these last weeks. And really, it's a question every follower of Jesus asks is what what impact does my faith have on my life what role does Jesus play in my day today and you know who doesn't ask this question what happens when we let Jesus rule and reign well fans of Jesus don't ask that question you know the 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 people that say yeah God's pretty good um, but he's mostly uninterested in my life or yeah I like Jesus and what he stands for but for him to be the ruler of my life? I'm, I'm not sure about that. And these are folks that typically are, are good with the idea of God, and they'll certainly visit him like Christmas and Easter and in a church building a few times a year. But to consider Jesus as king, uh, that's something they're a little uncomfortable with. And some of these same folks, they'll, they'll, keep, they'll say yes to Jesus, but they'll keep him at a distance. And when he says, come follow me, if we're honest, they'll say, no thanks. I'd rather keep my life how it is. Now, I know a lot of you very well, and I know that you're not like this. You're not just a fan of Jesus. You're here right now, so you come more than a couple times a year to church. Um, But I also know, because I know this about myself, is that when we think of our lives as Christians, we often segment things. We say, okay, God can have this, like an hour-ish on Sunday morning. He can have a little bit of my money. Uh, he can have a little bit of my volunteer hours. But there's these other parts of my life that I'll take care of those things. And so in this series, we started off looking at the teachings of Jesus, but then we tried to get really specific. You know why? Because the Bible's really specific. And we've been trying to, to ask ourselves questions about how does Jesus rule and reign, and how does his kingdom come affect our identity and our sexuality and our singleness? And this morning, Jessica and I are hoping to faithfully give a panorama of God's design and intent for marriage. And I say the word panorama because uh, the biblical view of marriage, it spans creation and redemption and the end of all things. I mean, from Genesis through Revelation, we get an idea of God's purpose and design for marriage. So, very much a panorama this morning. We'll get to everything. Big picture. Big picture stuff. So, with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us, and then Jess is going to share a little bit about us as well. So, Father, we just thank you for each person that's represented in this room. And we know, Lord, we all come from different places. Some of us are single by choice. Some of us are single not by choice. Widowed, divorced. Some of us have been married for years. Some of us are struggling in our marriage. Lord, wherever we are this morning, though, we know that your grace 
is for us, that your heart is for us, that you have good purposes and designs. And so when we say, be my king, that's a safe request. In fact, it's the best request. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at this big panorama of marriage throughout Scripture today, that you would realign us with your will, and that you would give us hope for the future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we will be celebrating 18 years of marriage this summer. We're pretty excited about that. We met in Hawaii where we worked with youth with a mission and we ministered to students and uh, led outreach teams to East Asia and the South Pacific. We did that for about four years. Um, Andrew mentioned earlier we have five kids right now and we've been a foster family for about four years. We love to talk about foster care and adoption and about supporting um, biological parents trying to reunite with their kids in the foster care system. That's one of our passions. Uh, so, you know, hit us up on any questions about that. We love to talk about it. Uh, last week, Andrew spoke specifically to those of you who are single and encouraging you to see your season of life as a gift and to see that there's purpose, there is wholeness to be found in Christ right now. Uh, there's this notion in the church and out of church that you get married because you find the one person who completes you entirely. But that's not the truth, right? A good marriage starts with two whole people coming together in Christ, for Christ. And so we want to challenge that idea that we complete each other. Because we can only be complete in Christ. Amen? Um, so today, if you're single and kind of hearing this message on marriage, I want you to keep in mind you can be an encouragement to the marriages around you. You can bring wisdom. You can support. You can bless the marriages around you. But you are also called to be whole as a single person. And that is such good news. So Andrew's going to start us off in Genesis in the beginning, with yeah. the big picture. Yeah, so we talked about this a few weeks ago as we looked at uh, God's creation design and how it informs our sexuality. And, and really, there's continued layers as we revisit Genesis 1. We see God's original design and purpose. And uh, it starts, really, Genesis 1 starts with this 30,000-foot view of creation, all of it. And this includes, in creation, us, male and female, and how they reflect God and how male and female are to rule over the earth, to populate the earth, and also how male and female were made for each other. So you remember in Genesis 1, uh, 27, 28 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so from this initial view of creation and specifically humanity, we see that the sexual difference between man and woman enables them to carry out a specific purpose that God has in mind, the purpose of populating the earth. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, you can't rule the earth from one location. And so this humanity is meant to spread out and to multiply. So Genesis 1 starts with this, but then Genesis 2 zooms in a little bit more. And if you've ever read it before, you wonder why does it seem like out of order? It's not out of order. It's now just zooming in on the same kind of creation purpose. So Genesis 2 picks up and it says, Then the Lord 
God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And so in this way, woman is just like man. She's an image bearer and with the same role to play on the earth as man. But she is also different in man in that she complements him. And it's in this complementary nature of their relationship that we see man and woman come together as husband and wife. Uh, Genesis continues on. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And so this union of man and woman is beautiful, it is enjoyable, and it is a deeply meaningful act of love. And so in a lot of ways, the very first wedding happens in a beautiful place, in a garden. And God, like a loving father, walks Eve down the aisle to Adam, and Adam and Eve are joined by God in this beautiful illustration of marriage. Now we know, well, if you've read the Bible, you know, uh, that eventually things go sideways. And woman is tempted to sin, and Adam, he's standing idly by while this happens, and he eventually follows her lead, and he also is given to sin. And when sin comes in, then shame and insecurity, fear and brokenness, all of these things follow and they create strife, and they create division. And this beautiful purpose for marriage then has to fight against the sin and brokenness that is now in the world. And this is the world that we were all born into. Many of us have felt the direct effect of sin on marriage in particular as it relates to the experiences we've had. Um, I personally... My family was divorced. My parents were divorced when I was in high school. And so I know what sin does to marriages and how it breaks people apart. Many folks, uh, even in our church, have wrestled with sin in their own lives individually, but also in their marriages. And we have degrees of unhealth in our marriages. Why? Because sin works its way into marriages. One of the illustrations I often give as I talk to, to people, couples, about their relationship with each other is kind of postures in relationship. So when you first get married, there's this posture of intimacy, we're face to face. But then over time, right, that intimacy, you, you then kind of go shoulder to shoulder, like we've got stuff to do. We've got, we're having kids now, we've got bills to pay, and so, yeah, we're kind of, all right, we're in this together. But if you're not careful over time, you then go back to back, and you start moving away from each other in marriage, right? And this, this, is, this doesn't happen like that, but this is the effect of brokenness and sin when we give it room in our marriage. And so as we are aware of the, God's original design, but then how sin has worked its way into creation. One of the questions that we're faced and we have to ask in our current culture is, what is marriage for? If one of your kids were to come and ask you that, what would you say? What is marriage for? What does our culture say? Well, I'll tell you right now. It's under a big umbrella. And the umbrella is, marriage is for my needs being met. And this means I, I, I look to marriage to fulfill me romantically or emotionally. That's what marriage is. Some people maybe even think, oh, marriage for me will allow a sense of financial stability. We'll have two incomes. We'll be able to, to start life and have a house and get two cars. And 
That's what marriage is. It's stability, financial stability. And as Jess said earlier, and this is true for those of us, that, those of you that are single, is marriage, it meets our needs and our identity. Oh, you complete me. And so in many ways, what our culture really has come to view marriage as, like so many of our relationships, even friendships, is what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And so as we realize that that's the cultural narrative of marriage and the draw and the desire, and then we hold that up to God's intent, that we see that his purpose for marriage is so much deeper and so much more rich. And the truth is this view of marriage being about me is actually a more of a recent cultural view. For most of history, and not just in Christianity, but certainly in Christianity, People have, the people of God especially have viewed marriage through the lens of a word that I'm going to throw out to you and define in just a moment. That word is covenant. They view marriage as a covenant. So what does that mean? A covenant is, in simplest terms, simply an agreement between two or sometimes more people, depending on when the covenant, what the covenant's made. And it's one of the most important themes in all of Scripture, did you know that? Covenant. It's one of the most important themes of all in all of Scripture. Covenant indicates God's desire for the people that he has made and that he has relationship in. And so this covenant language is seen throughout the Scriptures, from Old Testament through to Revelation. And it's this promise that God makes. And it's this request for relationship. And it's often summed up really in, uh, in kind of one line. I think we could sum it up. I will be your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell among you. And we see these in multiple verses, a variation of this in multiple verses in the scripture. So the scriptural picture of covenant is this mutual commitment between God and his people. And with that covenant, with that commitment, there are promises and provisions including consequences if you break the covenant. So, guess what analogy, what picture of a covenant relationship God uses the most in Scripture? If he says, a covenant is to look like this, what picture does he use the most? Throughout Scripture, the picture of marriage. So God's heart for his people is best displayed through the institution of marriage. In the Old Testament, God mentions, God says to his people, Israel, you are like my bride. In the New Testament, God's people, the church, are mentioned in the same way, the bride of Christ. And this analogy that God uses is because there is no other institution in humanity that better captures the essence, the image of a covenant relationship than this, this deeply committed, grace-filled, and loving relationship that God has with his people. And so just as each of us are image bearers reflecting who he is, marriage itself also reflects or is to reflect the steadfast promises of God, the grace of God, the commitment of God to his people. And there is nothing more sure in this life than God's promise, his covenant. And so marriage is to reflect that. 
The Gospel of Matthew records this interaction that Jesus has with these Pharisees, these religious folks that come to him, and they're looking for rationale for divorcing their spouses. And so they come to Jesus, and they, they ask him some questions about divorce. And so in order to answer these questions, I want you to, to see what, how Jesus replies, and, and listen to the covenant language and the design language in Jesus' response. He says in Matthew 19, 4, he says, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother to be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Let me share just three brief observations from this. Number one, Jesus grounds the design of marriage in creation. Number two, Jesus reiterates that husband and wife, man and woman, joining together in marriage is God's plan, this one flesh. And number three, not only is it God's plan, but it's his doing. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So any breaking of the marriage is not only a violation of the covenant, but it's also this tearing apart of the oneness of marriage. And this is such a radical and and beautiful view of marriage that when we hold it up to the culture's ideas, man, they pale in comparison to this type of covenant. So One of the biggest differences, too, is covenant isn't based on how I feel today, how Mm, I feel when I'm making a promise. It's what I am promising to do every day. So it's not based on a feeling or something that is short-term. It's based on what I'm going to do no matter what. And that's also how God loves us, right? No matter what, no matter our sin, no matter what, he's going to love us. And so our marriage covenant should reflect that as well. Yeah. So we're to answer the question, what is marriage for? Well, we say it's, it's designed by God, bringing two equally fulfilled, fully uh, valued identity bearers, image bearers of God into an intimate relationship so that they become one. And all the while, this marriage covenant is a reflection of God's commitment to his people. So in this way, like the role that we have with our kids is so important because we're reflecting a commitment and a covenant that God has for us. So the question is, this is this is a tough one for many of us, how does this oneness really work? Um, Jessica was born in Washington. I was born in California. She was naturally a Seahawks fan. And I was a 49ers fan. Like, how does that work? How, how can two people like that come together? And we have to understand, if marriage is a reflection of God, then our understanding of oneness is rooted in God, specifically the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons yet, one God. And also we see this oneness as it relates to Jesus' relationship with the church. So with both of these things in mind, we're going to look at how the early church viewed the oneness of marriage. And I want to encourage you right now to go ahead and grab your Bibles for yourselves and open up to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and Jessica's going to start us off here. If you don't have a Bible, the ones in the pews in front of you, they're yours to take if you don't have a Bible but you can shortcut to Ephesians 5 by turning to page 1008 in the Pew Bible. You like that? I like that. 
All right, I'll give you a minute to get to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 21 and read through 24. Ephesians 5:21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Well, first we have to pause and unpack that big blaring word submission a bit, right? It starts out with a mutual call to submission. We can't skip over that part. That's packed in with the marriage section of Ephesians. Submission does not mean lesser than. It doesn't mean silence. It's one of those words that the culture has really clouded. So if we're going to understand this, we have to clarify what it does and doesn't mean, right? The word submit here speaks to order and authority, but it doesn't in any way mean inferiority. It doesn't refer to control. The Greek word for submit is a word hapo, meaning under, combined with the word tasso, meaning to place in order. So Paul is talking about using a word that means to place under or in an orderly fashion. He regards husbands and wives as spiritual equals but with functional differences. We have to look at this in the big picture of the role that we play in making Christ known. Men and women are created as equals, but they have different responsibilities within a marriage. There's no question of superior or inferior. That's not part of this. Remember, we read just a little bit ago in Genesis, God said, let us make them in our image, in God's image. He made them male and female. There's no room in a biblical worldview to see women as less than. Verse 24 says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. This is encouraging a heart position of being for our husbands, of acknowledging his role, his leadership in our relationship within the context of marriage, and being to being willingly for him. Remember, there's supposed to be unity. God calls us to unity in marriage, that one flesh relationship laid out in Genesis that reflects the triune God. Marriage is intended to be me for you and you for me and us for God together. A husband may have the responsibility of leading, but in practice, both husband and wife are working toward the goal of glorifying Christ in their lives. And both husband and wife portray a Jesus role, you could say, right? Jesus was fully submitted to God, the Father. But he also had and has full authority. Mm -hmm. Both husband and wife are called to a mutual submission as well. Our mutual submission to each other, my willing submission to my husband and his headship in our home can reflect that covenant marriage that we were talking about 
The world desperately needs to see that in our sin, in our brokenness, God loves us and he gives himself up for us. There's an overall call in this whole passage in Ephesians to unity that we can't miss here. Mm -hmm. One thing that we need to be clear on, too, is that wives are not to submit to sin. They're not to submit to anything that goes against God's word. That includes abuse of any kind, Mm. right? As a woman made in God's image, ultimately we stand before God. He is our ultimate authority. We stand alone before him someday, and we answer to him. Submission also doesn't have to do with personality. I think this is one of the big ways that the culture has um, clouded this word, right? Or or the church, really. Often it's been taught to silence women or portray something of a timid, quiet women when sometimes those things have a lot more to do with personality than in this verse, right? Submission doesn't mean being quiet or timid. It's not defined by the duties that we take on in our home. Each marriage has a different blend of personality of two different people with two different personalities. Our marriage won't look like your marriage Mm -hmm. because of that, right? Marriage flourishes when both husband and wife are serving each other. And the world and the church needs strong women. Amen? And it needs strong men who can encourage and come alongside women to flourish Mm -hmm. in their God-given gifts and strengths. A wife is made in the image of God, so she brings her own kind of wisdom, her own ideas, her own perspective, her own, um, her own desires to marriage. So submission in a healthy marriage, in this context that we're talking about, is a willingness to acknowledge and to yield to the order in a marriage that places different responsibility on husband and wife while fully being who God made us to be. The last verse in this passage, let's look down in Ephesians 5.33. There's one more verse for wives. And it says, And the wife must respect her husband. Respect means reverence, to hold in high esteem. This verse is talking again about how we posture ourselves toward our husband. And I'm not saying this is, and this verse isn't saying this is the only way a man understands love, right? There's a lot of good materials out there. Five love languages, maybe you've heard of that. There's some good materials on how to find out how your particular spouse gives and receives love well. Um, But there's something powerful when a husband has a wife that shows respect, when we speak well of our husband, when we show trust in him. When we affirm who he is and what he does, when we come alongside him in what God has called us to do, and when we're a team, right? Criticism and competition can tear a marriage down so fast. There's no room for that from both husband and wife. Be his wife, not his conscience. Give him grace. Notice him. Appreciate him. 
A godly wife's respect for her husband despite his tendency towards sin or despite his sin that he's working through can be such a powerful tool to help him become who God mm. is making him to be and who God has called him to That's be. Good. And always, as a woman and as a wife, our first love, our first responsibility is to God. Yeah. Turn it over to you. And we were talking about that word submit when we were sitting down talking about this. And it's, it's interesting, even for us, as we, as we heard that word, we thought, ah, oh, man, why does that feel weird, even for us? And, and Jessica asked me the question. She goes, has there ever been a time where we've been at, like, such odds that you've been like, this is what we're going to do? Lay down the law. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I can't ever think we of that. We couldn't think of one yeah. specific And we've, been, we've had to make some tough decisions, and we've had been through some just really brutal, like, seasons in, in our lives, and they've affected our marriage. But the reason I think we haven't had to ever take the culture's definition of submit and insert it in here is because all of this, remember is in the context of oneness. So if he, the, the instructions here in Ephesians connect to the heart of God for the two to become one. And so on that note, uh, there's some instructions for husbands. If you have your Bibles, continuing on in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body. Again, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, Paul can't help himself as he's talking and giving these instructions to men to continue to talk about Christ and the church in the context of marriage because both are an illustration for each other. As, as a covenant language that God uses, is an illustrate, marriage is used to illustrate that. So for our marriage... Jesus' heart towards us, towards the church, is an illustration for us and what our marriage is to look like. And so uh, when we look at this, these verses, one of the first questions I might ask is, how are men supposed to love their wives? And the first thing we notice, do you notice what's not here? Demand for submission. <laughs> Demand for obedience. Or any language of patriarchy or what we would typically consider like classic leadership. What is here, however, is worth noting. First of all, do you see the connections? In verse 28, we see the connection of oneness. He who loves his wife loves himself. Genesis 31, we see, or in, in verse 31, we see Genesis all over again, tethering the instructions, the design of marriage to God's original creation. And in verse 32, we see the example of covenant, but this time flowing the other way from Jesus to the marriage. We see the language of being a husband. Look at verse 27. Radiance. To present her radiance. In other words, to allow her to flourish and to be beautiful and to be fully who God has called her to be. That's our role as husbands is to help make that happen. 
sacrificial love we see in verses 28 and 29. So men, how are we to love our wives? As Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. Lynette, in the verse that she read earlier, Jesus was even wrestling with this submission, right? Because he knew it was going to cost him everything. It was going to cost his life. He was going to have to suffer and to die. Yet he loved the church so much he did that. And so men, we are to love our wives in the same way. Does that sound misogynistic or patriarchal? No. It's sacrificial love. And continuing on, we see in verse 29, this call, this language of being a husband to feed and care for and provide for our wives. So the early church is hearing this. They're hearing these words, the ones that Jess just read and the ones that I just read in Ephesians. And they're really not that new. I mean, these are tethered to God's design and purpose. God spoke them in Genesis. Jesus reiterated them. They're being unpacked in a context just like ours this morning. They're really not that new, except they are completely at odds with the culture. So as the early church is hearing this, they're going, wait a second, this isn't how women are treated. <laughs> uh, I'm the man, like they're supposed, and, and men are saying, wait a second, I'm supposed to love my wife sacrificially and, and have her best interests in mind to present her radiant. So th the culture at large, this was radical, even though God's word had been unchanging on this for some time. And that's certainly true today. The idea of covenant of mutual submission, of loving each other in this way. And so this brings us, as we're just in our last few minutes here, to the question that we've been asking ourselves through this series. What does a kingdom marriage look like? How does this walk out? We just want to share a few practical things that we've learned. Yeah, I think we have to keep in mind a kingdom marriage is about aligning ourselves with God's word. Yeah. Um, that's why we contrast yeah. the culture and the, the message to us as a church we live in a society where biblical values aren't widely accepted or maybe they're skewed, um, where God's design is questioned or rejected, right? Mm -hmm. But the kind of love that comes from a marriage where this love and respect and covenant is at work can stand the test of time, and it's a marriage where both husband and wife can thrive. Yeah. And our differences... Um, you know, you spoke to this earlier. God made us different on purpose. Our emotional wiring, our physical wiring, God made that on purpose to complement each other. Mm -hmm. But let's be real. Marriage is hard work, right? Any marriage is hard work. You know that phrase, the grass is greener on the other side? Well, of marriage, it could be said, the grass is greener where you water it. <laughs> so... <laughs> right? The grass is greener where you are going to water it. And our culture has this notion that if something is hard or uncomfortable, it must not be the right thing mm. for me. Yeah. But God's word calls us as Christians to walk through hard stuff together, to be for each other and for Christ, to face, to stand firm in trials, right? And that means in our marriage too, yeah. A good marriage requires a lifetime of grace and of forgiveness and of hard work. But there's gifts in that. Marriage is a gift. One of the most powerful things that we think couples can do together 
is to make intentional time for one another. This will look different depending on what season of life you're in. For us, we've had little ones in our home for um, almost 14 years. And so we haven't always had a babysitter that could come. We haven't always been able to go outside of our home for a date. So we just decided whether it was home every time or not, we were going to have an intentional date each week. And so it has mainly been in our home. So Thursday night is our night. We say no to good things because it's our night and we're going to protect that. That alone is a statement to each other, right? We need that time. We look forward to it. So much of marriage, like Andrew was giving that illustration of walking side by side, so much of marriage is in the midst of work and raising kids and, you know, reaching goals together that if you're not super intentional, you look after a while at the person and think, who is this? Mm. Who are you? Your coworker. Your coworkers, <laughs> yeah. right? So if you make intentional time for one another, a regular priority, then you can continue to grow in that friendship, that romance that marriage needs to th- survive, that intentional time. Some of the things that build a good marriage are the same things that build a good friendship, mm. right? Taking time for each other. Honesty, communication, trust, having fun together, laughing together, sharing interest or at least supporting, um, you know, the 49ers or, I mean, interest that you find your spouse has. Um, Having grace for each other. And if it's been a while since you have thought about the friendship side of your marriage, Mm -hmm. then we want to encourage you today, think about what's one thing that you could do to move towards your spouse and friendship, to build that friendship side of your marriage today. Think about one thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because when we first got married, I, I warned Jess, I said, I have, to, I have to tell you straight up, before we get married, I don't want you to be surprised later, I'm a huge football fan. And I, every Sunday after church, I'm going to be watching football. And she said, well, that's fine. I'll watch football with you. And that the very first Sunday after we got married, it was that fall. I remember we made the snacks and we sat down in the front room and she watched ready. She, so ready. she watched about 20 minutes and she goes, do you mind if I do something else? <laughs> but I cheer for your team. But she still supports my, my addiction. My poor mama, so, yeah. she's a diehard <laughs> Seattle Seahawks fan. So the, just kind of three questions as we wrap up that I, I leave you with is one kind of connects with what Jessica was talking about is, is how are you investing in your marriage? And so that Thursday night time for us, as our kids got, when our kids were young, we, man, they were in bed like 7.30, 8 o'clock. That, that gave us still two, three hours in the evening. No problem. As they got older, we're like, what do we do? They're staying up later. We don't have the time we did. So we still send them into their rooms on Thursday. We're like, you can read or you can play games, but we don't want to see you the rest of the night. <laughs> And they know. And What's they, your date night? They know. Home? We tell them. So we've, we've done, I think, a pretty good job keeping that a, a sacred time. But, but there's other ways to invest in your marriage. I think even just asking the question, you know, how are you investing in your marriage? What's, how are you being intentional about that? Another question I think that's important to ask is, what does your marriage revolve around? And you can tell this by your schedule, right? Look at the schedule in your week, by what, you, what you're spending the most time or the most money on. And if we're honest, most of marriages, as, you have, as kids come into the scene, they become centered around the kids. We're going to talk about this next week. We're going to do this again as we talk about family and parenting. Um, but having a kid-centered household will not make for a strong marriage in the long run. 
it will make for that at the end of the time when they're graduating high school, you look at each other and like, we did everything we could for our kids and nothing for our marriage. And what is our marriage? We've been together 18, 20, 25 years and we don't even really, it's, it's gone cold. Um, so it doesn't happen like that. It happens subtly. And we even fight this when we are able to go outside the house on a date and not talk about the kids during our daytime, right? Um, and it's, we're not saying don't love your kids, don't support your kids, but we're saying they are not the center of your marriage. And so what is? What does your marriage revolve around? And so much of this ties back into what we talked about last week. But marriage is a gift given to you by God. And so how are you to use that gift for his purposes in his kingdom? And then one last question, and we don't have a lot of time to, to address this, but I, we did feel like it was necessary to, 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 to mention. The question is, what if my spouse isn't a follower of Jesus? Like, does any of this apply? <laughs> um, the Bible does address this. Uh, we, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Peter chapter 3, and the Bible addresses this. Now, we have to think that culture first. Most often because Christianity, this movement of Jesus followers, is a new thing. And so you had couples where one spouse was becoming a follower of Jesus and the other wasn't. They're already married. Um, in our day, that might not be the case. Maybe you're already a Christian and you chose to marry a non-Christian. Um, so what do you do in either case when you are married to an unbeliever? 1 Peter 3 talks about this. I encourage you to, to look at it um, later. But to briefly sum it up, you love and you respect your spouse and you live in such a way that reflects the faith that you have in Jesus, regardless of their faith. So essentially, nothing changes. You still love them in the same way. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 1, he goes even a little bit farther. And he says, in, in doing this and loving them in this way, you can win them over without words. Just by the way that you're living your life. And so we know that's a challenge when you have different worldviews and different faiths. Um, but the, 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 the oneness, the covenant, all of those things still apply in, in those marriages as well. And here's the thing. For all of us, no matter what our marital status is, whether you are single, married, divorced, widowed, one of the central themes of this kingdom of God message is redemption. Redemption. That Jesus meets us right in the middle of our mess with a covenant promise for us. And this covenant promise is one of forgiveness. And it's one that leads us into new life with a fresh start. I'm not talking about a new marriage. <laughs> I'm talking about a fresh start right where you are. And so this redeemed life then gives us hope. For this life, while simultaneously pointing us to an even better thing to come as we put our faith in Jesus. And so this offer of redemption, it extends to your marriages. If you're in a marriage that's unhealthy or unequally yoked or whatever that might look like, God's redemption applies to you and your marriage today. Amen. And so with that, we want to pray for the, for our, the marriages that are represented in our church um, and we ask that you pray with us this morning. Father, we look to you. You are mm. the giver of good gifts. You're the God of redemption. Mm. That word redemption means so much, so much to Andrew and I personally. You've done redeeming work in yes. our lives as individuals and as a married couple. 
And God, you bring redemption beyond what we can imagine in the moment of our hard times. Um, you, you are the author of love. You understand how to reach people's hearts, God. Mm. So we lift up the brokenness, the hurt, the pain that anyone is walking through today as an individual or in a relationship, God, and we hold it with open hands to you. We ask you to move and work in the ways that only you can, God. We look to you, and we ask you for your wisdom, for your redemption love, for this covenant love to be made clear to us so that we can walk it out mm. for the world to see, for a hurting world, God. And we also, just in our last moments, we want to, as a church family, we want to lift up our Asian brothers and sisters. We want to call out to you, to cry out to you on behalf of our Asian brothers and sisters this morning, God, that are hurting, that are feeling angry or afraid or frustrated. God, we want to be for them and with them. Show us what that looks like, Lord. Show them your love. Bring your justice. Bring your mercy. Bring your understanding. Bring your reconciliation. God, we just acknowledge the pain. We just acknowledge that there is so much hurt right now that we desperately need you to come in the midst of and change and heal. We need you so desperately, Lord. Thank you that you are a God that is true to his word, that you're true to your promises. Mm -hmm. Thank you for who you are, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.